The following is produced by Artisan Church. Welcome to the Artisan Church Podcast, a weekly broadcast of Artisan Church in Rochester, New York. To learn more about Artisan Church or to support the ministry, visit www.artisanchurch.com. Well, we are uh, in the final week of this series called Small Gifts. It's, uh, it's been quite an epic series in that it's spanned three distinct chunks of the uh, church calendar of the, of the uh, Christian year, which we occasionally uh, follow sort of the rhythms and patterns of, of the church calendar that's been developed over the centuries since the time of Christ, and uh, especially sort of through the third, fourth century and through the medieval times, that those patterns, those rhythms. So we actually began while it was Advent season, and then caught the chunk of Christmas season, which is, you know, that week around Christmas or so. And this is actually the first Sunday in Epiphany. And so uh, we've we spanned all those. And as you may have picked up from some of the, the references in the Old Testament scriptures and some of the great songs we sang, we're going to be looking at the story of the Magi. Um, but uh, is there any kids in here? They all, they all, they're all hermetically sealed out there in the lobby. Uh, hey, could I have Kara, who I think can hear me? Kara, would you come or any, Emily, any of you? Aiden, a child. What child is this? It's Emily and Kara. Um, but each week, you guys remember we've opened a gift at the beginning of each message time? So um, it looks like the, the tree's been, it's about a week and a half after Christmas, so the tree has been picked pretty bare. Uh, but could you go see if you can find something maybe still jammed in that tree in case we miss something? Uh, so uh, each week, if you uh, haven't been around for a while, you're maybe our guest for the first time here, we've opened a small gift. Uh, hmm. <laughs> I'd say keep looking. Well, that's a pretty good one. I think it's in the tree. As you recall, can you bring up the... Uh, there, it should look something like what's not in my hand. There we go. Cool. So each week we've opened... Bring it over here. Here, you, get, you take the lights. Um, Leave the gun. Take the cannoli. All right. Thank you. So uh, should we open this? Yes. Why should we open this? Little. It's little. <laughs> I don't know if that's a reason to open it. It's a gift. It's kind of weird not to open a gift. Just leave it there for a second, though. So each week we've opened a gift, and let's be honest, they've been kind of lame gifts, right? The first week it was some candy cane, and it wasn't the big, really good candy canes. It was kind of the tiny ones, the kind they hand out at churches, Right? Yeah, we had that, and that's somehow connected to inviting people, or who knows. I've long since forgotten, even though I did the message. And then the second week, we opened, uh, we opened the gift, and it was some small round can that, depending on your, how the economy's affected you lately, could have been, say, a can of crab meat, or perhaps tuna, or maybe cat food. We weren't sure because someone had taken the label off there. And we talked about the passage there about how we should take what our leftovers are, and even more so, and use them to help and share with others. Something like what Scott was saying during the confessional uh, passage. And then I think the third week, do you remember what Scott preached that week? Do you remember what gift he had us open? 
It was a couple weeks ago, but that's okay. It was a magnifying glass. This is actually the coolest one, though he didn't let any of the kids play with it. He kept it to himself. Um, and that talked about magnifying God. And then, uh, oh, for Christmas Eve, we opened one. Do you remember what that one was? Were you around for Christmas Eve service, anyone? That was actually the baby Jesus was jammed inside a tiny box, remember? We had, we had, <laughs> and so we put him with the nativity where he, um, well, kind of belongs, though he really belongs in our heart, but he, uh, he also belongs in the nativity scene when he's porcelain. So we put him there, and then we opened something last week, I think it was a tape measure. And so it would make sense to open this gift, right? Even though we're kind of late, uh, the all the rest of the presents are gone. This seems to be the last one. So, so you would think it'd be bizarre if we didn't open this gift. Yeah. yeah. Do we sometimes do bizarre things here? No, we often do bizarre things. <laughs> we're just going to leave that there for a while, okay? So we're not going to open it. Oh, I know. It's going to be hard. But um, thank you for your help. And... You can go hang out with whatever adults are, are watching over you because you guys sitting right there while I preach. It's, it's kind of creepy. So, no, I'm not opening it. Oh, I know. So this idea of, uh, of not opening a gift. In fact, you can stay there for a little while. It won't creep me out too much. Uh, but we're not opening it. But this was a, a bit of a competition that my family had. Something about doing this series uh, has brought out all these untold family stories. Uh, it's felt like group counseling or something here, as I've told stories of my sister and I around Christmas. Well, there's a tradition that we had, speaking of those family traditions we talked about a couple weeks back, that my dad and my grandfather sort of started. My grandfather, uh, in this case, my mother's dad, so my dad's father-in-law. And they had a way of turning opening Christmas presents into a competition, where there was, in fact, winners, well, one winner, and everyone else was losers. And that's just the way Christmas sometimes went. And because it was funny, my sister and I eventually caught on. And the way the competition went was, you tried to be the last person to open a gift. And so you'd sort of watch how the piles of presents were going, because we'd go around and open them roughly one at a time, Um, you know, kind of a, just the, the, the right way of doing it, you know. As I said to some who are newly married or have just been married years and have now figured out, sometimes your in-laws do Christmas wrong, and there's, there's not a lot you can do about that. Uh, uh, and so there'd be one of these things where, you know, it'd be all done, and then my grandfather would go, oh, what's that? You know, he'd pull a, pull a present out, of course, he'd open it, and then, and then my dad would reach down behind the couch or something, oh, what do you have here? The best at it, though, was, is that Jill and I eventually got into this uh, trying to be the last one to open them. Uh, my grandmother was, uh, she was crafty, cunning. Uh, she would sometimes hide a present, in a sense, like the day before, so that when it truly was all done, and like they'd done the whole, oh, look, I opened the last one. It might, we might be like brunch, and someone's looking around the tree, and they're like, what's, what's this? And Grandma would be like, is that for me? You know, she'd open it and went, so... So opening the last gift and finding that last one was always a big deal. And there was one Christmas that was somewhat poignant uh, for my family because of the Christmas that my dad almost didn't make it to. Uh, he's healthy and well, has been for decades now, but this is when I was around the age of nine, turning ten. And he had a, uh, 
this intestinal condition that, that medication and things like that weren't taken care of. And he had to go in for some emergency surgery. And it was right before, I think it was just before fifth grade started for me. And my family, we've, we've always made interesting decisions on how we've done stuff as a family. And I can kind of see in retrospect why my parents did this, but it wasn't necessarily the smartest thing. Because what happened was, where we lived in northern Maine, had a great hospital, but not really equipped for this kind of massive intestinal surgery and recovery and those things. So they went downstate, uh, about two, two and a half hours south towards Bangor, uh, down by where my grandparents lived. And since I was involved in school, good student, knew you know, my friends were there, uh, instead of going with my family and my perhaps dying father, though no one really let us know that, uh, I lived with my first grade teacher and her family because we were friends. So as though I was going off to college at the age of 10, I had my own room and you know, no family around. Um, but what I did have, uh, as, and I did visit my, my dad, and, and again, uh, he, he almost didn't make it. Um, but what I did have was a pinball machine at the house I was staying at. And so you can imagine how, uh, how much fun that was. And so my dad pulled through the surgery, uh, and then he pulled through the recovery uh, a few months before Christmas. So there was kind of time for full recovery, so that when Christmas rolled around, it was still fresh enough that near, literally near-death experience and sort of the craziness of our family, but uh, recovered enough that we could... Uh, guys, uh, why don't you go back there and sit on the, <laughs> sit on the floor? Uh, all right. uh, need to cut to the uh, image of the uh, train coming off the tracks. Uh, Unbelievable. It's the pastor's kids that are always the worst. Um, I sent mine to Florida. That's how bad they've been. So, uh, But there'd been enough recovery time so that you know, everyone could kind of fully do Christmas. And so you can imagine the, the presents were a little bit over the top this year because you know, everyone was alive. And so, you know, let's really celebrate this. And so we did the thing where, you know, there's a little bit of competition. And I, I honestly don't remember, except I remember that when it seemed like it was all said and done and, and all the tree was emptied out, that f- as a family experience, it had been wonderful. Through the lenses of a, 12, a 10-year-old and a, I think my sister was probably seven. She's a two and a half years younger, seven-year-old. We, it had been a pretty good haul. And we were deeply satisfied with, with those gifts and that experience. And then, there's one of those, hey, what's this in the tree? Jason, Jill, come here. What, what's this? And we pulled out this kind of cutout reindeer, you know, chintzy, this would have been 79. Uh, yeah, <laughs> so you can imagine the uh, kind of the level of, of detail and quality that would be there in a 1970s cardboard reindeer card. Uh, pulled it off the tree, and on the back was a poem. Or more so, the way my family did stuff. It was more of a limerick. Uh, and this, uh, this limerick, <laughs> we were, I don't know what your family was like, but we were, we were not a haiku family. We were more of a limerick family. Uh, this, uh, this series of verse then led Jill and I on this kind of adventure through the house. Because there was one more gift unopened for each of us. You know, it took us, uh, you know, I think the first one took us to, to some cold region, which meant there was one in the freezer, so we pulled that out. You know, and then that one led us to this, um, I have to paint the picture for you. It was a, sort of this round object where 
it was like a Google map printed out and then pressed around it, and it was spun. And it was, uh, it was on top of, um, again, sort of printed and bound Wikipedia articles, a big, big bookcase <laughs> of them <laughs> there that, uh, you know, that got that reindeer. And then eventually, you know, ended up that, you know, Jilly got hers, uh, Jilly, my 36-year-old uh, younger sister, uh, Jill, found her gift under the clothes in the, in the bottom of her closet. And it was this record player stereo thing, which for a seven-year-old, she loved listening to music. So that was amazing. But me being the, uh, the eldest born and first son, uh, I still had one more task to accomplish. And so that, as I read that, it led me to something about going to this dark nether region or something like that. And of course, it was in the basement. As I went down the basement stairs, it was dark, strangely aglow, right? And there was the pinball machine. And so, an amazing Christmas, this, this unopened gift that we finally discovered after the fact. And the way it could have gone, you know, let's assume for a moment. I remember saying, you know, even though I was 10 years old, I think, at least 9, I think I said briefly, because I hadn't for a while, but I said, I believe in Santa, because it was one of those, it was a Santa gift, which uh, I eventually... Before I entered a junior high, got that stuff sorted out, but I don't want to ruin anything for any kids or parents here. Um, and it was an amazing gift. But if it truly had been from someone else and, uh, say, had some sort of expiration date on it, you know, that little card tucked in the tree, you know, could have been missed. It could have been left unopened. And, uh, you know, we always had live trees. My dad prided himself on getting the, the fullest luscious uh, fir tree. We often would have, because we always had uh, friends over. Uh, my parents always had friends over the house. They literally, one year, would look in there to see if holes had been drilled in it and, and additional branches put in. They had not. It was, uh, but in a, in a living room that was heated often with a, a wood stove, the dry winter air, it would not be long before that tree was a deadly dangerous fire hazard. So not long after Christmas, we would take that you know, just up the little back of the hill behind our deck and throw it on the bonfire pile where we'd have massive bonfires come spring and summer uh, that were famous all across Griffin Ridge um, for the revelry that would take place there. Uh, and apparently, every once in a while, one of those cards would get lost and someone would realize it's... And I think even one year, someone went up like three, four weeks afterwards, because there was, hey, did you, did you get our card with the money in it? No. You know, it's like pawing through the snow and pulling out this, you know, the money's still spent, though, even though it was all wet and cold, uh, in the tree. And it's bizarre, sort of the frustration that, uh, that Karen and Emily were, were demonstrating here in the front row for all of us to see, that uh, an unopened gift, it's a bizarre idea. Why would you leave a gift unopened? And yet sometimes... We do. And in my way of thinking, a gift unopened is probably a gift rejected, at least for a time. Maybe there's hope to open it at some point. But the passage we're going to look at tonight is all about these gifts and whether they get opened or not, received or not, who's giving them, who's receiving them. And it's sort of subtle on which gifts we ought to pay attention to. But what I want us to do is jump into Matthew chapter 2. And if you want to use the, the red Bibles there that are under the chairs, it's on page 783 and then going into 784. 
And it's the story of the Magi. These were influential astrologers, probably from, uh, from Persia, that area. They, uh, though we sometimes, you know, in popular culture think of them as kings, they, they probably weren't kings. They were, they were more likely just uh, powerful members of the, of the court. They were king makers. They were often empowered and had the influence of picking who the king would be because as astrologers, which was their, their stock and trade to look to the stars and look in the sky and sort of discern what, what fate had in store, if there was a way to, to thwart the, the way fate would lay things out for everybody. And, and if you recall, if those were here for our flannel graph series that we did a few weeks back, uh, it's all online there if you missed it. And it, was, it was a fun series. We did the entire Old Testament in four weeks and in 32 feet of fuzzy cloth. Um, but you may recall Daniel, one of the prophets. Does anyone remember who Daniel, you know, he had a little bit of a run-in by, by not uh, bowing down to false idols and, and not praying or praying when he should be doing something else according to the king's uh, arbitrary laws there. But do you remember that once he gained full favor with the king, what was he put in charge of? He was actually put in charge. He was the chief magi. So centuries before these magi show up, there's this fascinating intersection between God's people and this other culture. And as you recall, Daniel refused to participate in, in eating food sacrificed to those idols, of, of participating in the astrology or things that, uh, you know, as revealed in the Jewish scriptures, were not uh, God's way to understand his revelation to uh, obey and worship him. And so I often wonder, there's some speculation among scholars, uh, whoever they are, uh, but scholars say, some do, that maybe there's, there's a little bit of a, of a thread of those things that carries through, that maybe Daniel set in motion. And so here's where we pick up this story of these magi finally showing up. Matthew chapter 2. <clears throat> says, In the time of King Herod, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea, Wise men from the east came to Jerusalem. Your translation there may say magi. It's where we get our word magic from. These wise men, these magi, came from the east to Jerusalem, asking, where is the child who has been born king of the Jews? For we observed his star at its rising and have come to pay him homage. So again, their way of discerning what's going on in the world was looking to the stars. And for some reason... God speaks to them in a language and in a format that they can receive and understand. It's not sanctioned. It's not, you know, the right way. You know, pick your, pick your thing. Nonetheless, God speaks to them that way, and they, and they show up. And then there's a, an odd response. Because <clears throat> it says in verse 3, when King Herod heard this, he was frightened. And all Jerusalem with him picked up on the fear. Why would Herod be frightened of these guys showing up. You see in the cartoons, right? It's just, you know, three, three guys and some camels. You know, what's so frightening about that? Well, one, it probably wasn't three. It was probably more than that that were magi. In fact, church tradition sometimes has a number around seven. There's five, four. Three probably comes from us uh, looking at the three specific gifts. Uh, but we have no indication in Scripture how many they were. 
except it wouldn't make sense for these guys to just travel that far, the three of them. So if they truly are these powerful kingmakers, these influential magicians, these, uh, these astrologers from a far land, they're coming with an entire entourage. And the quality and expense of their gifts, these are, these are men of means. So there may be dozens, perhaps over a hundred people making up this entourage. And they're coming from a land that at times has been at war. And there's disputed borders there. Um, and so is this a, a diplomatic party coming to say, here are the terms of your surrender. Uh, here's our demands for you to pay tribute. Otherwise, we'll be at war come spring or, or those things. But also Herod. You know, he's, he's the king, right? Well, he's a puppet king placed there by the Roman Empire, only tangentially connected to the Jewish people. He's not really fully a part of that faith and heritage and, and, and even um, ethnicity. And so to hear news that a, the real king of the Jews is here might frighten him. And maybe that just kind of played out for the people of Jerusalem as well, that they picked up on the fear or just saw these, this foreign giant entourage showing up. Um, that usually doesn't go well when they show up to the seat of power. And so these wise men are seeking something. You know, there's something unopened in their lives, and they're seeking and searching. And so, of course, they go to the seat of power because surely you know, those who are in power would be expecting something, know what's going on. And yet, Herod is clueless, in part because he's a pretender to the throne. Um, it says there in verse 4 that Herod, calling together all the chief priests and scribes of the people, Herod inquired of them where the Messiah was to be born. So if those in power don't know, maybe the center of religious life, maybe they're going to have some answers. And and oddly enough, they actually do have some answers. They know the answers to the questions. Um, Herod asks, you know, where is this Messiah to be born? And they know their Bible real well. Uh, you know, they do their sword drills. Uh, they got quick answers. It's these rabbis and chief priests, actually it's chief priests and scribes in this case. And they told him, and here they're quoting, I, I believe it's Micah, prophet Micah chapter 5, yeah, verse 2. They do a paraphrase, or more likely they're sort of quoting from the Septuagint, the, the Greek translation, um, where our stuff is based on the original Hebrew. So they paraphrase, and they told him, in Bethlehem of Judea, for so it has been written by the prophet, speaking again of the prophet Micah. And then they do this paraphrase or loose quotation. It says in verse 6, and you, Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, I by no means least among the rulers of Judah, for from you shall come a ruler who is to shepherd my people Israel. And so they have the answer. But are they looking for the gift? No, they just got good answers to their questions. Uh, they can score really high on a test. But as far as actually knowing what's going on, they have little more clue than Herod does. And then verse 7 says, And then Herod secretly called for the wise men and learned from them the exact time when the star had appeared. And so, though we have the, you know, our traditional nativity scenes often have the magi, you know, usually three guys with some camels. We've got a, we've upgraded because we have a, a whole elephant 
is part of this nativity scene, which I think is pretty cool. Uh, even though they show up at the birth, that's, that's not really what the scriptures say or seem to indicate. If this appearance in the sky, however this sort of worked in their lives, happened at the birth, it would have been a good year or more of traveling to actually get here. And also the horrors that, that Herod um, commands later on, that all the uh, males under the age of two should be slaughtered, sort of lets us know that these are, you know, that Jesus is a toddler at this point, you know, one to two years old, somewhere in there. And so Herod, you know, tries to discern, when's this, this uh, threat to my throne? When was he born? And so they tell him, and it says, Then he sent them to Bethlehem, saying, Go and search diligently for the child. And when you have found him, bring me word so that may, I may also go and pay him homage, which we know is, um, is not truly what he intended. And when they had heard the king, they set out, and there ahead of them went the star. They had seen its rising. And so at this point, the nature of the star is a little, little unclear. You know, is this some supernatural occurrence? Is it going before them in a sense of, of just how it, where they're now located, they can, they can see it? Is it a similar thing to, to God's Shekinah glory in the Old Testament where you see this, this kind of radiant light appearing in places and it's, it's a way of God manifesting himself? Um, short answer, don't know. Uh, but however God needs to, he guides them. And however they need to be guided is what they receive. That's the part I'd, I'd focus on. And so it goes out there before them uh, until it stopped over the place where the child was. And when they saw that the star had stopped, they were overwhelmed with joy. Sort of like when all the presents had been opened and underneath the tree was bare. And then there's, what's this? So they hadn't yet opened the gift. They hadn't yet fully experienced it. But there was some anticipation that there's something amazing in store. Again, who knows how long, not only that they'd been journeying, but that they'd been anticipating this. You know, if in fact they, uh, if in fact Daniel had set this in motion, you know, maybe way back centuries beforehand, Daniel, who clearly knew the scriptures of his people, um, Maybe he gave them um, and left copies. Or, so maybe they were familiar, uh, Numbers 24, beginning of verse 17. Imagine you're a magician astrologer. Just say it. Just imagine that for a moment. But you get your hands on the Hebrew scriptures, and you come across this verse. I see him now. I see him, but not now. I behold him, but not near. A star shall come out of Jacob, and a scepter shall rise out of Israel. That would get your attention. And so who knows that it could be centuries where this tradition's been passed down. At the very least, they've been traveling for months, and they're almost there. And they were overwhelmed with joy. In verse 11, And on entering the house, they saw the child with Mary his mother, and they knelt down and paid him homage. I think some translations say worshipped him. Um, it's not clear to what extent they understood the worship they were offering. Uh, but they knew something special was going on. 
You can kind of also imagine for a moment what this scene must have been like for Mary and Joseph and, and the toddler Jesus. Uh, you know, sort of imagine him, you know, a little younger than Aiden, you know, kind of moving around, can talk just enough to be cute, uh, you know, that kind of stuff. Uh, and again, it's not three guys on some camels. It's a giant entourage, and they're showing up at night, which, you know, in that day, you're pretty much done. You're getting ready for bed. You're maybe even in bed because without electricity and the rhythm of life, uh, you've got to get up usually when the sun rises. And this is a, at least a working-class family, probably poor. Maybe they're middle class, depending on how well the, the carpentry business is going. Um, but they've had to move around a bunch, so it doesn't seem like they're, they're wealthy, at least. And these guys show up and come in. And then they do this, uh, this amazing thing. And here's where we often focus, because it's about the gifts, right? We're doing a series called Small Gifts, and they've been really lame gifts so far. And finally, we get to some good gifts, because <laughs> here's the gifts they lay down. They paid him homage. They knelt down, paid him homage. And then, opening their treasure chests, they offered him gifts of gold, frankincense, and myrrh. Interesting gifts. I loved uh, when we, we sang earlier, and I don't know if you caught it, but some of the verses actually explained the, the symbolism, the meaning behind some of these gifts. You know, frankincense. Do you smell some of that coming in? I thought it was a good smell if you're a little don't like smelling things, may throw you off, but some incense was burning before because the band was here earlier. And I don't know, I show up sometimes and they're burning incense and I, I just don't ask questions. Uh, no, it was, uh, it was an act of worship uh, or to, to prepare for this. <laughs> yes. Uh, but frankincense, sir, has built into the word incense, was used for religious worship. You would, you would smell that when you entered the temple. It was, it would, you know how smells sometimes cue off memories and recollections. If you were to smell frankincense, you would, you would have a sense, a body memory of being in the temple and, 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 the, and the sacrifices going on, which no doubt with frankincense help covered some of that you know, metallic, <laughs> irony smell of blood and, the, and those things going on and the, the sweatiness of all these people there. So worship that you'd give to a deity or, or that a priest would use. And so there's, there's some symbolism there. Myrrh, bizarre gift to give to a baby. It's like, uh, it's like giving, a, you know, instead of savings bonds, you know, giving to someone's newborn, you know, here's, here's a coupon to a funeral home. Um, just wanted you to have that. Because myrrh was used in the embalming of, of the bodies. Um, and not embalming necessarily in the sense that you'd have in Egypt, but really to just cover the stench of death while, while the mourning and the, and, the, and the body being out for days and, and those things might take place. It's an odd gift. And then gold, that one makes sense because you can spend gold, right? You can, uh, that's like you open that card and you just dump that right out, right? You read the card maybe because your parents tell you to. Who's it from? I, um, uh, Aunt um, Becky. That gold probably came in handy as they fled to Egypt uh, and lived there for years uh, later on. And so we often focus then on those gifts, But I want to flip it a little bit. Because, you know, the tree is bare. It's a week and a half after Christmas. But it's fascinating to me how these guys really showed up late. Right? They missed, you know, the fireworks, the, the angels in the sky, 
you know, proclaiming, you know, peace on earth, goodwill towards, towards everyone, men and women, um, not just the men. Uh, they show up a year or two late to something that's a complete foreign concept. The idea that a Jewish baby was somehow king in a way that mattered to these foreign astrologers, it doesn't get more bizarre than that. Showed up late, foreign concept, but they brought gifts. And some of us who feel like we've shown up late, and it's a foreign concept, misapply this and say, well, we better come bearing gifts. And we miss the whole gift-giving exchange that's meant to take place through the birth, life, death, and resurrection of Christ. And we leave unopened because we're so busy thinking, here's what we have to give. And there's a sense that we should certainly recognize who Jesus is. And it's fascinating, these, again, these Gentile magicians, astrologers, have just a glimmering of understanding through their gifts that this is a, a high priestly king who will be a perfect sacrifice. That this baby, this toddler, that we're kneeling down to worship um, will be king of kings, will die in our place, to be worshipped. But as you notice, their gift giving is a response of worship. Because it's even kind of interesting, this toddler Jesus, if he is who the scriptures and, and in their case, the stars seem to indicate, uh, he's still a toddler. You know, and like any good toddler, he's probably playing with the, with the, the chest that came in, right? <laughs> you know, he's playing with the cardboard box. He's not really interested in the frankincense, gold, and myrrh. And I love some of, the, uh, some of the sacred artwork that sometimes shows this toddler Jesus sort of reaching out and playing with one of the beards of one of the magi. And, you know, it's just, he, that's so just fascinating to me, the, the full humanity as well as the full divinity of Christ. Um, and so here's the challenge. To instead see that the gift is Christ himself. And that if that remains unopened, then nothing changes. The gift was there for Herod. What would have been different if Herod had said, finally, a real king, I can stop pretending? He'd probably been killed by the Romans, actually. Uh, but I bet that would have set something in motion. What if all those frightened folks um, really asked the tougher questions? What's going on? What if those who had all the right answers but were still completely clueless had paid attention enough to that crazy rumors that the shepherds kept bringing into town occasionally about you would not believe what happened. There's angels and you know, a little kid with drums and the, and the animals were... I don't know. You know how rumors go. It got 
bigger and crazier as the years went on. There was raisins, singing songs. Uh, <laughs> are you sure? I'm sure. Uh, and yet these magi, it doesn't seem like they leave the gift unopened, but they actually receive grace. And though we don't know through Scripture what happens with them, there's some wonderful church traditions, certainly legends about how they took this, just the, their barest understanding of the gospel, they took it back with them to their land and sort of preserved it enough that, you know, a generation and a half later or so, where the tradition says uh, Thomas, you know, doubting Thomas, the twin, uh, the one who took a whole extra week to believe that Jesus really had risen from the dead, that Thomas was the one who went out as far as India uh, and, and even found people ready to, to have the fullness of this gospel explained. But let me go back to what I said at the beginning. In my mind, a gift unopened is a gift rejected. And even though it's a week and a half after Christmas, there's always the opportunity to still find that gift. To find it tucked somewhere, and there might be, you know, maybe God needs to speak to you in limericks. But even as, as my sister Jill and I were kind of finding those unopened gifts, there was something amazing about having to put a little bit of effort into it, to look at the verses, um, thankfully that don't come to us on uh, 1970s reindeer cutouts, um, but to do a little bit of work to figure out where this gift lies and what it can mean in our life. And so, for some reason, as I was kind of mulling these verses this week, it just really sort of troubled me in a good way how bizarre this story is and how easy it is to mix up which gifts are the important ones and they're not the gifts we bring. It's the gift we receive. And how many people who should have known better missed it. And how those who were the least likely were the ones who were overwhelmed with joy and knelt down and worshipped. And so before we pray, I'll just leave you with that thought. That a gift unopened is a gift rejected. Let's pray. So God, we do admit that this is kind of a bizarre story. Magicians and foreign dignitaries showing up, falling some, you know, ball of light or astrologers. People showing up late to something completely foreign to them and yet recognizing a gift that you're offering. And so my prayer as a pastor and friend for everyone here is that we would not use any excuses to leave that gift unopened that you offer us in Christ 
and any of the other small gifts that accompany that, that we'd not leave those unopened as well. I think particularly of those like myself who showed up late. This wasn't part of our background. We didn't grow up knowing this stuff. Complete foreign concept. No business making any sense or being part of our lives. My prayer for them is that they would not leave the gift unopened. For those who are already followers of Jesus, my prayer is we would not uh, be frightened of what the gift might hold. Whether it's a threat to our, our sense of power and rule in our own lives like Herod had, or unspoken fears like the rest of Jerusalem seemed to have, sort of an indeterminate cluelessness, a living in fear because there's not something real at the center, even though we claim to follow Jesus. Or worse, like those scribes and Pharisees, God save us from having all the answers and yet leaving the gift unopened. And so we thank you that by your grace, this is not a gift that, that goes bad, that can be thrown away or destroyed, and that as long as we have breath, no matter how long the journey takes, there's still time. And so I just ask that you would speak to our hearts in whatever way gets through best. That you would speak to us in a language and in a form that's, that cuts right to our soul. It says it's okay to come empty-handed. But know you'll give everything the gift I have for you is life it's forgiveness it's meaning it's an eternity with God and those who draw near to him and it's a life here and now uh, that is challenging full of suffering and an adventure God, do not let us leave that gift unopened. For it's in the name of that gift we pray. Christ Jesus, our Lord. Amen. Amen. Well, each week, we always leave open uh, a time to respond to God's word. We don't just abruptly end right there and kind of send you off on your way. And one of the wonderful ways we make sure we do that each week is at the communion table. Uh, Such a small and simple gift that Jesus left us, the bread, the wine, um, as a symbol that he was king and priest and sacrifice, that he was worthy of gold, frankincense, and myrrh, and that he was worthy of our worship. And we don't often overemphasize, I'll say, um, the need to, to examine yourself and, and be terribly worried and concerned on whether or not you can go to this table. We tend to emphasize grace because uh, 
I think that's where the emphasis should go. Um, but nonetheless, there is a very healthy response when we hear God's word that has self-examination as part of it. And so the Apostle Paul says of those who, in his context, had been abusing the communion table, don't think that's the case here, but in that context, he said, no, examine yourself. See if there's anything unworthy going on in your life. Not because you then need to fix it or bring some pretty good gifts, uh, but because if that's in the way, then you'll never receive this gift anyways that this represents. And one of the ways you might examine yourself, kind of look into into your life, where you stand with God, uh, might involve kind of putting your body into this a little bit. We don't usually do stuff like this either. There's something powerful in that imagery of these kingmakers, these foreign dignitaries, these magicians, these astrologers coming before this toddler Jesus and just bowing that knee. And if you find that helpful at all, you may choose to do that. I don't care where you kneel. Kneel at the chairs. We got like an official kneeler over here, if that's your thing. Um, But I tell you what, you get out of your comfort zone, you change your posture, you change it from this intellectual exercise to to start to put something in motion, even the simple motions of, of those acts of physical worship. God can work with that. And so, no pressure. But I'd like you to feel free to do that. How's that sound? And so if you choose to, if you are seeking, let's put it this way. If you find yourself on roughly the same level as, as someone showing up late with a screwed up worldview to something that's a complete foreign concept, and yet you're still seeking to follow after Jesus, then the table is open for you. If that's not where you're at, it is okay Just be thoughtful, prayerful. Still kneel if you want. And maybe God will still call you to receive Christ in one of the physical ways of representing that act of faith might be at the table. So let me pray for our communion time and uh, and then open it up. And and the musicians, uh, Anna and the so-and-sos, you guys uh, can make your way up here. And if you want to, Take communion first yourself. Feel free to do that, guys. Um, But let me pray as they make their way up. So God, we do thank you that it's not just a a wonderful Christmas story, but it's truly a story of, of the Savior of the world being born into human history. And not just to some tiny little Middle Eastern tribe but being a gift of grace, of forgiveness and holiness and life here and now and forever. That's for everyone. And so as we spend time examining where we stand before you, 
whether we come empty-handed or think we've got enough to earn or pay off some debt, uh, correct us of those errors. Instead, show us the gift of grace in your Son, Jesus Christ, and let it not remain unopened. And as we, uh, some of us choose to receive communion, as we tear that piece of bread and dip it in the wine and the juice, let that physical action um, be an indication of the spiritual reality of nourishing, of vitality, the fact that we are forgiven in Christ. Um, make that known to us by your Spirit. We pray all these things in the name of God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and yet one God. Amen. Worship as God leads you. This has been the Artisan Church Podcast. To receive future podcasts, go to www.artisanchurch.com slash podcast or subscribe on iTunes. Thank you for listening.